Welcome to the Rocky Road Podcast, brought to you by Rockbusters, with your host, Dennis Wager. Dennis is a best-selling author and an expert in demolition, rock, and concrete breaking, as well as a professional blaster. He is also president of Rockbusters Incorporated, along with his son, Brian. On the podcast, you'll hear exciting stories of how these challenged types of rock and concrete jobs are done. you learn about the uses of expanding grout and explosive devices. But furthermore, you'll hear about some of the hurdles and struggles entrepreneurs and business owners have had along the way, how they got started, and how they broke through the obstacles and found the path to success. Along with that, some insight for young people and people wanting to get into the industry. So listen in. I hope you enjoy the show. Now, here's Dennis Wager. Everybody, welcome to the show. Just want to introduce my good friend, John Norman. Uh, John is a licensed blaster. He's in the uh, state of California. He also does a lot of mine rescue and has written a number of articles for different magazines and uh, is very knowledgeable. And just want to say welcome, John. Thanks for coming on the show and uh, helping us uh, share some of your knowledge. Well, thank you for having me, Dennis. Yeah, so maybe you want to give us a little bit of a background on yourself and, and kind of what you what got you to where you are today? Oh, sure. So, uh, you know, my original relationship to rock and rock work uh, started out as I'm a caver, and uh, I'd always been interested in rock hounding and mining and things like that. And um, I joined a rescue team in about 2002 uh, through San Marino Sheriff's. It's Cave and Technical Rescue. And it turns out our responsibility included a lot of abandoned mines. And um, I, you know, sort of helped... Uh, build that capability up. We had a huge search in 2014 for a homicide victim where we had to search about 100 adits and shafts. And we had a couple of cave rescues. And I, you know, kind of tried to say, hey, maybe we need to get some more knowledge and technology in here. So you know, we built downhole cameras for mines. Uh, we ultimately ended up finding her with one of those. And we realized, you know, hey, we also have to deal with, you know, boulder chokes and rock collapses and there was a cave rescue that happened from another team in Utah uh, a few years ago, a place called Nutty Putty, where they ended up leaving the subject and they couldn't even get their body out. And um, I decided, hey, maybe we need to get some more training. And I started looking down the road of blasting and rock work, you know, about 10 years ago and built up a program for our, our search and rescue team that, you know, we could do mechanical rock removal and then later on microblasting and then we got into real explosives. So that's kind of how I got into that. And then I, um, you know, started writing for the Mining Journal and uh, we got some help and we ultimately ended up writing a, a whole paper on rescue blasting, uh, two different ones, uh, the IACE and another conference and kind of becoming the authority on that weird little niche of blasting. So very laser precise stuff and uh, end up starting a company uh, to do rock removal and blasting and explosives testing, getting magazines, getting all of the licenses from scratch in California, which was a lot of work and insurance and everything, and finding powder dealers that would deal with me. So it's been kind of a long road, but I'm you know I'm having a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, I can I can respect that a lot. I, I can relate to it also, and uh, getting all those little things in place like the insurance and the magazine and the licensing. Uh, it's, it's kind of like one step at a time. And then you look back and you go, okay, well, I, I have that all together now and I can go. Right. And, uh, Indeed. yeah, we actually met, uh, Jack Peters, uh, course with American explosives group. Was that, 
in Oregon that he did that one? That yeah, in Bend, Oregon. Uh, in Bend, you know, right, yeah. At that time, we were doing the microblasting with our cave team. And uh, I think Jack's uh, training actually came up on a Facebook ad on our search and rescue page. I'm like, huh, this looks interesting. You know, if we're going to be doing this, we should probably be getting at least uh, one level of training higher than what we're doing in the field. So I contact him. He's like, yeah, we have this, you know, kind of one day orientation class for explosives for like volunteer fire and people like that. It's, you know, 300 bucks or something. But, you know, we don't have any more um, before the end of the year. Uh, but we got this Get Certified as a Commercial Blaster Academy coming uh, coming up in Bend. Do you want to do that instead? And we're like, yeah, yeah, I want to do that. That sounds great. So, yeah. you know, a couple of us uh, drove 395 to Bend. We stopped in uh, Reno at one of our SAR guys' old hippie friend's place. And uh, we stayed at a, a little house in Bend where we also knew some people and, you know, went out and did the classroom and the hands-on and really enjoyed it. And I kind of like realized at that point, I really want to just keep on this path. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. I think what I took away from that the most was the difference uh, in the velocities. You know, like when you look at like dynamite uh, and uh, compare that to C4, you know, the, the little uh, test that we did there with taking the C4, kind of making it into like the shape of a, uh, or, yeah, the shape of a shape charge, which yeah. you know, I think Jack, Jack just stopped by the dollar store and picked up like a little 10 cent or 99 cent funnel and then made it the shape of the funnel. Uh, and it just kind of like literally blew the whole middle out of that almost like three quarter inch thick steel plate that we set it on. Oh yeah. And I think it continued on and just pulverized like about eight cinder block CMUs that were under it too. I, I was pretty impressed with that too. Yeah. What was really blew my mind was that there was nothing left. It's just like, there's, there's not like a piece of steel anywhere. There's like no little bits, like there's no remnants. There's nothing. It's just gone. Yeah. And like the outside wasn't even uh, that hot. Like it just transferred all that energy straight to the middle of it and like vaporized that steel. There wasn't like fingernail sized pieces of anything. It was just like had ceased to exist. That was really cool. Yeah. That's what I found too. It's just like, you know, you kind of, you know, you get used to after uh, blasting for a while, like you know what you expect from dynamite and ampho and those kind of shots. But to see C four in action was was really something neat. And then the other one where he took the debt cord and wrapped it around a telephone pole and and uh, cut the telephone pole in half. Oh yeah, that was great. Yeah, that, that was, was one of the first things too. when I got my powder license. Uh, I bought a roll of fifty grain debt cord, uh, basically just because of that. Like I, I I knew I needed it for you know some things like we have to you know, tie two sides of a canyon together when we're shooting, you know, like both rock walls or something. But it sure is fun to just use for little odd jobs. And, you know, it's impressive as a demo because it's about the same velocity as the C4. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, you can do a lot with that core too. Like I know a lot of quarrying operations, they use that, you know, like uh, dimensional stone, stuff like that. Well, it, uh, and it, it's also one of my go-tos if we just need to remove some boulders uh, and we don't care about uh, noise. Uh, especially like underground, uh, especially if it's a little bit rotten and maybe the 1.4, some of the other products aren't going to work as well. You can drill some like 10 millimeter holes or whatever you have, whatever your smallest drill bit is. If it's an air drill, you know, 16 mm -hmm. millimeter or something, thread some deck cord in there. You can pour some water in if you want to, but, you know, two or three of those and like a cubic meter of rock, it'll split it three or four ways, no problem. Yeah, yeah. That's what I like about the, the Royax too, even for the things such as dimensional stone, is that uh, now we have the 22 millimeter uh, diameter ah, okay. uh, in, all, it, yeah. in all different lengths. So they come from, 
you know, like trying to convert millimeters to inches, but that's like, come from like, like a one inch hole for that, give or take. And yeah, yeah. Inch, inch and an eight, something like that size. Okay. Yeah. But they come up to, you know, from say three inches long to a meter long. So like to 39 inches long. So, uh, What's nice about that is you have like a long skinny cartridge, which is a lot evenly, a lot more evenly dispersed as it's going off. So, you know, you kind of put those in a line of holes. You can, you can drill them say every 20 inches, like close <clears throat> together, but it'll give you a pretty accurate split. It's just like, how, how do you pick the right product or the right method? I mean, it's, I think in, in my mind or my line of work, it's, it's usually like the hierarchy of like the most aggressive is the fastest way. And then you apply the limitations or restrictions to why you can't do that. You know, whether it's, you know, sensitive yeah. area, whatever the case may be. So I, I guess like starting with how I train my uh, search and rescue and other people, cavers for like small blasting work. We start off with, you know, least violence to most violence. So, you know, drilling holes with feathers and wedges and mechanical techniques and then the microblasting, and then we move into the 1.4 and the debt cord, and then, you know, big machine drilled holes and high explosives. And so I, I'd say it's, it's a couple of things. Um, first of all, it's absolutely constrained by your site and what you can get away with. You know, if we're doing a small cave or there's a live subject, uh, we actually did a body recovery where we had to uh, remove rock. We had to blast about, uh, you know, 500 pounds of rock out to, to get to a guy who had been trapped and deceased. Um, you know, so I, in that case, you know, it's in a national park. We probably couldn't use high explosives. We did the micro blaster and feathers and wedges. And, uh, you know, that worked out. But, uh, you know, if you're doing like a commercial job, you know, I would say, you know, you're in city limits. You've got, you know, perhaps uh, fire and other, those, those, those other people. You have vibrations concerns. You know, I'm already starting at the idea that, you know, I'm going to have trouble even getting away with the drilling. So it's a question mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, do I want to do this fast? Uh, do I want to, uh, you know, typically it's going to be minimizing the risk because if you break a windshield or a window or something, you can get negative really fast in what you're making on that job. So I look at the fastest way to do that, but then I also step back pretty quickly and say, okay, well, the, the client will pay for the days on site anyway. Uh, what is probably the least risky way for everyone to do this and still have a good outcome? Um, you know, so, so yeah, I would say if you have uh, you know good, clean, sturdy rock, those 1.4 cartridges work very well, like the Royax, especially if you have um, you know two or more faces of relief, like a freestanding boulder. You know, I got rid of a 10 cubic yard uh, boulder in someone's front yard with you know, net weight of less than a pound of material by the time we were done and a little gasoline drill that I could uh, put in my pickup truck. Um, mm -hmm. You know, yeah. very, very easy, minimal uh, fly rock concern. Old carpets and sandbags work good for that. Uh, but if we're doing a lot of, you know, if we're, we have in place hard bedrock and we're out in the middle of nowhere, then sure, maximum violence is fine. Kinepak, dynamite, big machine holes, ANFO, uh, you know, it, it depends. Uh, if we have mm -hmm. rotten rock, you're probably going to be looking at some kind of high explosive. Uh, I mean, your expertise on the expanding grout, you know, I, I don't know how well that works when it's really fractured and cracked. I've had it work okay. But, uh, but you know, I'm, I'm not going to typically reach for the 1.4 product if I'm, uh, you know, have a lot of fractured and layered rock where it's hard to build up the gas pressure. 
Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of things I can add to that. One is, you know, you can test your holes before you load them. You know, if you're going to load them with Royx, <clears throat> what we do sometimes if we're concerned about fractures or cracks is you just pour water into the hole and then see if it sits there. And if it, if it you know, kind of drains down a little bit, it's fine. But if it just kind of drains out instantly, then, you know, you got a problem. So that's that's one way to kind of gauge if it's going to work and be successful or not. Uh, and even if it does kind of drain out, you know, fairly fast, you can just kind of put a heavier charge in than you otherwise would have. And then with the expanding route, we also make uh, plastic sleeves as liners for the hole. So you can you can line the hole and then you pour into the sleeve so it contains the grout uh, while it hardens up and does its work. Oh, very good. Yeah, I haven't done, uh, you know, some of those more advanced expanding grout techniques. Uh, what I found it really helpful for, uh, we had a, a job I did for um, one of my uh, SAR team guys building a house by Yosemite. And he got this property uh, at a really good price because it had a 10-foot rock outcropping in the middle of it and a bunch of dead trees that had to be removed by an arborist. And uh, after they did the tree work, uh, I, I came in with some 1.4 and we shot up all of the surface rock. But as soon as we got down to below grade, uh, really no amount of charge, it would just dissipate. You know, it had lots of fractures underneath a really hard crust and it would just yeah. sink into kind of layered fractures. And the expanding grout worked pretty good there, especially because we had, uh, it, it was able to hold product, but it wasn't able to reliably hold gas. And uh, a lot of the shots, they wanted, you know, uh, 30 centimeters or a foot here, you know, transitioning to, you know, 1.1 meters, four feet over there. And it's kind of hard to use explosives to peel off very fine layers like that. And mm -hmm. uh, they're very happy with the way the, uh, you know, the expanding grout cubed up the rock. And then we did a row of guard holes to keep the cracks from propagating under his neighbor's house. And that's a great idea. Like we do that too inside of houses. Like if we're doing a basement, sometimes we'll drill like a, uh, like a row, like line drill holes uh, up tight to the foundation, like maybe a foot away from the foundation. And it just gives it a place to stop breaking up. Uh, we've done some underwater as well, where you just drill the same, you, you drill a stitch pattern or you drill a line of holes close together. They don't even need to be big diameter, but just somewhere to, to stop the vibrations and stop the splitting and cracking. Oh, very good. So lots of little tricks that you learn along the way. And it's always kind of, you know, comes from necessity. Oh, I got to do this. How am I going to do it? What's the best way? And then you learn from all those, all those times of doing it, right? Oh, yeah. And you learn like more from the mistakes than from when it get, went perfectly. I, I almost think that when it goes perfectly, it just makes you overconfident <clears throat> the next time. Like if something at least small doesn't go right, like I'm a little concerned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think what we find <clears throat> more than more than not is, you know, you have to do what they call <clears throat> the pre-blast surveys. Like here, like in West Vancouver, anything within 50 meters and every every state is independent every province is independent every kind of area in that is also independent you know <clears throat> so in, in uh, west vancouver it's every uh, 50 meters so every house and sometimes it can be you know 10 or 15 houses that are that are included in a survey uh so you can spend fifteen thousand or ten thousand dollars before you even hire a blaster uh and then you got to also hire a surveyor to do your quantities your topographical survey and then they they also make you uh, bring a surveyor back after the blasting is finished or the rock removal is finished and do a post-blast survey to just prove how much rock you actually took out 
And then in the case of where you take out more rock than you have your uh, permit for, they can fine you. Even just you take out one cubic meter too much and you're at risk. So it's very constricting. And they also put a time limit on how long your permit is. So like in West Van, for example, you have a choice of either a splitting permit or a blasting permit. A splitting permit, they'll give you 11 days and a blasting permit, they'll give you 14 days. Uh, sometimes you can apply for a bit of an extension, but you've got to really kind of, you know, state your case of why you should get an extension. So it's all pretty confined, right? And then you take that, that's kind of one of our most restrictive areas, and you take it to other other places such as, well, I'm assuming California, New York would be similar, but then you get out into like Oregon and states like that, where it's, you know, I'm assuming more lenient. Yeah, Oregon, you don't even need a state blaster's license. You yeah. just need your ATF. Yeah, so so th- that in itself, so I think in my mind, you have two things to kind of uh, analyze. You have like, what's the best way to do the job? Uh, and and what regulations do I have to abide by, right? You know, like Oh, if, yeah. If you, like, yeah. If you're in California or New York, I mean, if you're in Manhattan, you know, you're not blasting no matter who oh, you are. You know, surprisingly, they do um, they, because they do? You, you would think they don't. Um, I actually just I watched during COVID um, ISEE, if those who don't know, that's the International Society of Explosives Engineers. They had a whole uh, member podcast series because there wasn't anything going on, you know, and you couldn't go to any conferences. And they had a guy who I think works for the fire department who coordinates all of the blasting in New York City and the five boroughs. And New York apparently has very, very dense, hard, like granite or nice bedrock. Something like 20 feet of it is all you need to support a high rise. And um, he said there's somebody blasting every day in New York City, even though you wouldn't (laughs) think they they would. Uh, You know, they might tear down a a three-story brownstone and need to, you know, excavate for a modern foundation for a glass high rise. And they really are using sometimes high explosives. I mean, they're putting lots of seismic monitoring in all around it. They're using electronic detonators and very sophisticated computer design patterns, you know, where they might only be detonating, you know, two pounds uh, per delay or something. But they might be moving, you know, tens or even hundreds of cubic yards of rock at these extremely tight uh, margins for vibration and zero fly rock and, you know, a very tight, uh, tight job site. Uh, but they really are doing that. Um, it, it's possible. It's just very expensive. Okay. Yeah, I, di- I didn't know that. So that's uh, that's good to know. I mean, that's kind of another avenue that we should uh, push on to see what yeah. our you know if, if our products can fit in there as well. I mean, I know yeah, they fit in there, but it's just kind of speak to. Um, you know, California, as bad as it is, uh, the state blasters license. Once you can agree to get them to let you sit for the test, only costs fifteen bucks. Uh, I, I think part of, you know, it sounds like Vancouver, maybe in West BC, has, uh, you know, had some committee modernize their rules. Uh, California, it's, it's like they haven't thought about it since the, the 1950s or something. So all the fees okay. are still relatively low. And each county does have to issue a permit, but it's typically good for a whole year. Uh, oh, so wow. you can come back multiple times if you need to. Uh, you don't have to renew it. You can renew it the next year and it's relatively affordable. Uh, you know, except if you're in, you know, some downtown area, the city might have a specific rule, but I haven't actually had a lot of problems so far, uh, getting a one-year permit at most places. Wow. Yeah. That's much different than here. 
Yeah, like the biggest thing they were worried about most of the time I've applied for something is how what are you storing? Are you going to keep it overnight or for an extended period of time here? And I even had one county that said, okay, well, you're just coming out for the day and leaving and it's a rural area, you know, Kern County. Uh, yeah, you don't need the permit if you're not going to store. Like I could use the Kennepack or something I could bring in a portable magazine and leave the same day with. They were okay with that. Mm-hmm. It was interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, here, I think the biggest advantage is, you know, like we were talking about, how do you kind of go from like the least intrusive, you know, or, or, or pick the right pick the right method, right? Uh, now, what we have for Expanding Route is we have uh, our new brand called uh, Black Gold. And uh, Black Gold is designed to go into the large diameter holes. So we can put it into three and a half or even four and a half diameter holes. Uh, and, and then that allows you to space them out, you know, four or five, uh, even six feet apart and, and to any depth that you want to drill. So the difference really is you need a, a drill rig, a, a machine drill to come in and drill the holes because they're big, but, uh, it saves you like a ton of drilling and it saves you a ton of grout, which also saves you a lot of money. Well, well that's great too, because, uh, you can definitely drill things with a track drill that you're going to have a hard time hand drilling. You know, like the fact that some of them can inject water to stabilize the collar a little bit, and they have just a enormous surplus of air to blast, you know, chips and difficult fragments and stuff out. Uh, that seems like right there, you know, you're doing a bridge or something close to infrastructure, um, you know, being able to drill those big holes and, you know, not use so much product. That seems like a big win. It is, because what the blasters really like is that they can just drill like a regular blast pattern and uh, they can just fill it with grout instead of load it with explosives. So the the guy running the drill doesn't have to think about, hey, I'm changing patterns. What am I going to drill? They don't have to retool or anything. They just keep drilling, right? Oh, that's great. Or if they were able to do, you know, the first thousand cubic yards with uh, dynamite and anfo as they approach the infrastructure, they can switch to grout without a whole lot of crew change yeah. and retraining or anything yeah exactly they used it a lot through the mountains here and in, in hope they're bringing in the pipeline the the trans mountain pipeline and uh the part of the pipeline went <clears throat> very close to the highway so they couldn't blast there so that's what they did is they used our expanding grout uh they just uh you know drilled the same pattern they, they drilled actually three and a half inch holes three feet apart uh but they only poured every other hole so they skipped a hole uh, and they had excellent results. It broke really good. Were they having to drill those in like a V pattern for a trench, or were you more just taking off uh, walls? No, uh, it was just straight a, a trench in ground. And so they just drilled a grid pattern, just just straight through. Okay, so straight through grid, and then you can pick it out with an excavator with a thumb or something. Yeah, yeah. They have a they have so many machines there. I mean, they they'd have a breaker if they need one, or if they just you know have a machine with a digging bucket, they could dig it out. You know, it takes a couple of extra days because we slowed the reaction time down on it so that it doesn't give you any uh, blowout issues. Uh, that's the problem that, that most uh, grouts have is uh, inherently they they blow out as soon as you get up to anything larger than a two-inch diameter hole. Uh, so that, that's where we developed this so that we can do the big holes. Because I always but, ran into a problem, like when we're bidding uh, jobs, say like for house excavations or a big amount of rock, uh, it was always just way too expensive to do it with grout, and it was way too much drilling when you got to drill every every foot, right? Yeah. So now you can take a job that's say ten thousand bucks and do it for twenty five hundred bucks. So they're just kind of use that as as rough math, you know. So 
Uh, well, just getting your know, hands on that much grout can be a, a challenge too. You know, I notice it's it's typically not stocked. It's always drop shipped, and you know, you may not be able to get you know three hundred uh, cases of that on short notice, right? Yeah, yeah, that's been a, a real problem over the last few years. Like after uh, with COVID and stuff, you know, everybody's gone through the shipping uh, crisis, and uh, it's it's tough. It's tough, really, uh, warehousing product that you don't know how it's going to sell. And uh, when that product has a shelf life, it's like, how much money do you invest in what's sitting on the shelf? What is the shelf life like on that? I've actually never gotten a straight answer. It's a three years is the shelf life. Three years. Okay. Yeah. We've, we've had it. uh, We've used it when when it's kind of expired and and after the three years, we've used it like five years. And uh, for the most part, it still works, but it's, it's slower reacting. It's not got the, the power and the strength. So we suggest, you know, try to use it within two years. If you're into the third year, then it's still fine. But after that, you're kind of not going to get the performance that you, that you so need. So actually, that's not more. that different than storing explosives. You know, everything is typically good for at least a year, you know, and, you know, three yeah. years is fairly common too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what I suggest is if, if it's a product that people are using, uh, just buy a pallet and then, you know, stock it, sit on it. And then when you need it, you, you, you've got it, right? You know, because always, you know, you get a job where you need, I don't know, like two, three, four boxes. But then you're going to get another one where you need 10 or 11 or 12 boxes. And before you know it, you've gone through a pallet. So even if the pallet sits for a few months or a year, uh, you know, if that's the kind of business that you're in, you know, you're better off to have it. And, uh, and then uh, at least it's there when you want it. Well, like we, it is amazing good, how good how often somebody, you know, asks for a job. Okay, we're going to take this driveway down because the slope isn't right. You know, yeah, it's going to be, you know, well, all we need is 18 inches here. All we need is that. And then after it's all done, they're like, oh, that's great. Could you go back and uh, let's take uh, more off here and more off there? And my wife really wants to have a parking area there. And now the contractor, you know, says that, hey, this would be even better if you, uh, you know, the, the water will be draining, you know, better if we just take that down more. And yeah, that yeah. usually gets two yeah. or three times bigger, even though you did exactly what they asked them to. Yeah, that's always what happens. That's why it's good to have it in stock and, and handy. You know, we do we do have a, a big supply now, but it you know we're trying to manage that as well as the year gets going. Then more and more people buy, and the orders are getting bigger all the time. You know, now it's quite common we have people buy six or, or ten pallets at a time, and and we got to try to juggle with how much we order. I, I think it's people are kind of like do not understand rock removal very well, and they're kind of skeptical that you're even going to get the minimum that they need, you know, on the blueprint done. And then when you got it done pretty effortlessly, and you know everything is below grade and the spec they wanted, they keep coming up with more things they want. Yeah, that's they the probably thought part, you were right? going to take a week. It was going to take a month. It was going to you know still have high spots and not be great. And it turns out it was you know like hey, when you yeah, hire someone who knows what they're doing, it actually goes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. So, yeah, this has been great. Uh, really glad you could join us. And um, yeah, thanks for the time to to be here and uh, oh, absolutely you know, share share a lot with us. That was that was good. And I think all this kind of stuff is helpful for people. That's really what I want to do. That's my my goal with the podcast is to kind of get people's awareness and knowledge, you know, kind of up to up to speed of what's really out there in the in the industry. And uh, bring together more people that are blasters and more people that are involved in drilling and rock breaking and excavating and kind of network and 
be more of a community with it, right? Because everybody needs to bounce knowledge off of each other. It's just helpful. Well, and I think people get stuck doing things the way they've always done it because it kind of works and they don't talk to each other and there aren't a lot of outlets to, to get together other than maybe one or two conventions a year. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's what I find too. Like, like blasters want to blast. That's what they do. Uh, not to take anything away from blasters because they're great. I love blasting myself, but there's that whole other niche of like, what do I do when I can't blast? Oh, absolutely. Or, you know, you've taken a big impenetrable mountain of rock and turned it into smaller rocks. Chances are there's still going to be places where you need to turn it into even smaller rocks down to like taking a few inches out so they can finish pouring the concrete. And a lot of blasters just don't have a lot of extra tools in their toolbox or know someone to call for that little high precision, you know, bit of cleanup and all that unless they nailed it the first time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Well, again, I appreciate you joining us, John. And uh, that was fantastic. Great, great to chat and catch up with you. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you would like to be a guest on a future episode and tell us your story, visit our website at www.rockbusters.com. If you have a project and would like to learn more about our products, or if you're interested in partnering with us and becoming a distributor, give us a call. Thanks again. We appreciate your support.